0: Let's pray. Father, if we could see what Isaiah saw, how we would respond this morning. And yet, Lord, you are able to make our souls behold your glory in your word, by your spirit. And I'm asking, Lord, that that would happen. I'm asking Lord that you would help now your word, this part of your word to come alive in our souls with an echo of the earth shattering glory that Isaiah witnessed that day so many years ago. Oh Lord, help us to see, help us to know. Father, would you please use your word now in the hearts of all who listen. For Jesus' sake, amen. Have you ever seen something that was so amazing that you could barely describe it to others? Your best attempts to describe it fell flat because you just knew that apart from being there, Apart from actually seeing it for yourself, no one else would be able to get it. I wonder if that's what what is recorded in today's passage was like for Isaiah. Isaiah received a vision of the heavenly king in his throne room that completely changed the rest of his life for him. And today's passage is simply Isaiah's description written down in his own words of what that vision was and and how it affected him. And I, I tremble before a passage like this because I know that that my words about Isaiah's words will never come close to giving us the experience that Isaiah had. And I so wish they could. I so wish that, that we could see what he saw. But nevertheless, Isaiah did write these words down. And as he did that, as a prophet, he wrote exactly what God wanted him to say. These are God's words. And so as we look into these words, as we lean into these words, as we seek to understand them and to wrap our heads and our hearts around them, God can meet us here in these words and he can change us too. He can help us to see his glory here. And as we've just prayed, that's my prayer, that we wouldn't just understand this passage, that we wouldn't just comprehend it, but that we would encounter God in his word and and walk away changed. So let's start first by considering the setting of this passage. You'll remember that Isaiah chapter one to five are sort of the prologue to the book of Isaiah. There's three messages in those five chapters, most likely coming from all different points in in Isaiah's ministry, when together they give us a picture of the situation of Isaiah's day and, and, and what sort of situations he was speaking to and addressing and with Isaiah chapter 6, the, sort of the book of Isaiah proper gets started with what we understand to be Isaiah's call to ministry. So that's sort of the setting of, in the book of Isaiah. There's also a setting in terms of, of a historical marker, which, and, and that comes in verse 1 where we read that this happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Now King Uzziah was one of the better kings of Judah, he reigned for 52 years. Now, on, on both ends, that some of that overlapped with other kings, but he, he was a king of some sort for 52 years. And, and, and the 52 years that he reigned were full of prosperity and expansion. They were, in many ways, one of the high marks of that southern kingdom of Judah after they split off from the northern kingdom of Israel and And you can read all about this in second chronicles twenty six and there's actually some of that in the study guide for this week and And what we read there is that at the height of his power. Uzziah grew proud and he went into the temple to burn incense as if he was one of the priests and when the priest tried to stop him He got angry and in response to that anger God struck him with leprosy And so he spent the rest of his life living in a separate house away from the people away from the temple And his son ruled sort of as the the public face of the of the monarchy he sort of ruled with his son and And so this is the time in which Isaiah's ministry begins. Once more, the people have seen a good king not finish well. And once more, there's uncertainty about the future, this incredible period of safety and expansion. Assyria, the threat of Assyria had kind of cooled off a little bit. Judah had expanded. But that period of time is coming to an end, and they haven't seen the king in years. And what's going on? It looks like sin and judgment are once again telling the story. And so it's in this year that King Uzziah died, which is right around 740 BC, that God, the king who does not die, calls Isaiah. And so that moves us into the main part of this passage, which is simply a description of God's majesty. That's what Isaiah sees, that's what he experiences, a description of God's majesty. Isaiah one tells us that this, was, this book of Isaiah was a vision, and that's the best way to understand chapter 6 here. God caused Isaiah to see a vision. A vision is similar to a dream. That's why you often see dreams and visions go together in the Bible, where, where God allows someone to see spiritual realities portrayed in a, in a visual way. And so it's not as if what Isaiah sees here is is, is uh, as, as if he was uh swept away up into heaven and is actually seeing the throne room of heaven. Rather what he's seeing here as best as we understand it is 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 along the lines of a vision. So God is portraying spiritual realities for him in in a visual way. And so that helps us understand how Isaiah can see God even though Exodus thirty three twenty says, "Man shall not see me and live." Now, it's also noteworthy. We can't be a hundred percent certain here because Isaiah doesn't actually see, or at least record, seeing God's face. And so, perhaps this was a real vision of, of of the manifestation of God, and Isaiah just doesn't see His face, and so he and so he is not struck dead. That's a real possibility. But the best way to understand this is that Isaiah is witnessing a vision. And what does Isaiah see in this vision? He sees the Lord sitting on a throne. Now a throne is a symbol of authority. So that's one of the first things we've got to see here. And this theme of, of authority and of kingship goes all throughout this passage. So think about this. Uzziah had not ended well, is hidden away. The son is ruling. There's uncertainty. And this is the year that that king dies. But God, who is alive, is ruling on a throne. And and Isaiah says that he is high and lifted up. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. There is no throne above his throne. God is the king of kings, exalted over all. There is no higher authority over God that tells him what to do. He is the ruler, high and lifted up, exalted. And then the next thing in verse 1, Isaiah says that the train of his robe filled the temple. So the train or the fringe of the robe is the part of a king's robe that touches the ground and kind of goes behind him as he walks. And so just think about what that's saying, that the train of God's robe, just the fringe that touches the ground, fills the whole temple. So this vision of Isaiah is somehow connected to the temple, whether the earthly temple or the heavenly temple. And just the fringe of God's robe fills the whole building. And so that suggests that Isaiah's vision of God is immense. God is God is. Huge, beyond what he can take in with his eyes. God can't be contained by this temple even if, his, if the fringe of his robe fills it. God's great beyond anything Isaiah can imagine. And so Isaiah goes on to describe God's glory except that he doesn't. That's what's so interesting about this passage is is what we read in verse one is is just about the end of, of the direct description of what Isaiah sees of God. Isaiah doesn't go on any further. Instead, what we find in the rest of the passage is Isaiah describing how the environment around God responds to God. And it, it happens in three ways. There's the, there's the seraphim, there's the building itself, the space, and then there's Isaiah, how they respond to God. So this is similar, if, if you think of, of, you've probably seen scenes like this in a movie where, where something that's either, something either good or bad is happening, but instead of showing us what that thing is, instead the camera looks on the face of the person, and from their reaction, we learn about what's going on. This sometimes happens in real life. Um, In the first year that Amy and I were married, we had mice in our kitchen, and we were standing there talking to each other, and then in behind Amy, I saw a mouse come crawling out and eat some crumbs on the floor, and I was in such shock that I stood there staring past her at the floor, and simply by watching my face, she picked up on what was going on and started to get... Um, excited the way that sometimes people get excited around small animals like that. And, and so uh, in, in a much more serious way, Isaiah 6 goes on to describe how the people are, and the situation, the environment around God responds to God. And from that, we get a bit of a sense of, of what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. So we see this in three ways. The first is with the seraphim. This is where Isaiah begins. And we see this starting in verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Now before we go any further, we need to ask, what are seraphim? What, what, what are these things? And the word seraph itself has to do with, with flame or fiery one. What's very interesting is that the word seraph is used other times in the Bible, and every time, you know how it's translated at least in the ESV, fiery serpents. Fiery serpents. You can look it up, Numbers twenty one, six and eight, Deuteronomy eight fifteen, and then twice in Isaiah fourteen twenty nine and thirty verse six. And the main place in, in, in all these where the fiery serpents show up is in Numbers 21.6. So that's where the people were in the wilderness. And once again, they start complaining that God has just brought them out into the desert to die. And as a discipline or even a punishment for this, God sent seraphs among them, fiery serpents, burning serpents, perhaps. The word there is seraph. And what does Moses do in response to that? He creates a fiery serpent, a seraph, on a pole and holds it up. And as the people look to it, they're spared from the plague. Now, it's interesting. We know from 2 Kings 18 that this bronze seraph, this fiery serpent on a pole that had been on a pole, it was actually being kept in the temple in the days of Isaiah and was actually used as an object of worship. It had sort of become like a, like a relic that the people were, were worshiping. And what's also interesting is that archaeology has uncovered, uh, seals from, from, from the, this day or the, the, the different, um, similar era in hebrew history where they'd have the clay seals you know where they'd melt the wax and they'd put the seal in and the insignia on there was of a winged serpent like a, a like a snake with four wings or that or that kind of a thing and this was so this seems really weird to us the idea of a flying fiery perhaps probably fire breathing serpent this is a strange idea to us but this was a very common idea a very common concept to the readers of scripture And so a Hebrew reader of Scripture hearing Isaiah say that there were seraphs above him first thought flying, fiery serpents. That's just what they would have thought. And there's a couple of references in the notes on the website of some scholars who have done some more scholarly research just really to to back that up. Now, I think that for us, we probably kind of bounce back at this idea a little bit because when we think of a flying, fiery serpent— What do we call those? We call them dragons, and we associate dragons with evil. Because Satan is a dragon, right? He is the dragon, the ancient serpent in Revelation 22. But what was Satan before he fell? And most interpreters of the Bible understand from echoes of the stories in in Ezekiel that Satan had been one of God's angels, And it's interesting that when Satan shows up in the Garden of Eden in the form of a serpent, Eve did not freak out and run away. She had a conversation with him. So we shouldn't be too surprised that around the throne in Isaiah's vision are dragons. And they're praising God. Here's why this is so important, because the angels worshiping God in heaven are not fluffy little babies on clouds, strumming harps lazily, okay? The vision of heaven that we so often have is of this sort of cutesy safe place. It kind of feels like a cosmic gift shop where nothing really important ever happens, No, the creatures surrounding the throne of God are terrifying creatures. I mean, just think of what verse 4 says when it says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And and he who calls is is the seraph. The seraphs are calling to one another. These things, when they speak, make the floor of the temple shake. I just heard a a story this week of a guy who was a a pilot flying an SR-71 Blackbird, and he as part of an air show, buzzed the tower and, and, and would have made the whole thing shake with the roar of his jet engines. That's what happens when these things speak. They are powerful, terrifying creatures. If you were to see something like this with your eyes, you would be terrified. And interestingly enough, almost every time, if not every time in the Bible, when angels show up, they have to tell people, don't be afraid, because that's our reaction And yet look at what these creatures, these terrifying, powerful, mythological creatures are like in God's presence. They're covering their their faces. They can't look at him. They're covering their feet. And and I've read all kinds of different commentaries this week to try to explain, like, what's the symbolism of them covering their feet? But but, but the picture, I think, is almost communicate something more emotionally, that it's almost like they're trying to protect themselves. They're cowering in God's presence, as much of a fetal position as they can get into. And they're calling to one another, saying, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So if these powerful creatures are in fearful awe of God's presence, what does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about the presence of God? So this is not one reason why we ought to consider this business with the seraphim. But really, connected to this is a second reason why it's important, why we've taken a bit of time to think about the seraphim and their background and, and all of that, is because hearing about the seraphim would have made an original reader of scripture think back to that first time where they show up in Numbers 21. See, this is how the, how the Bible works, is the Bible so often makes references back to other parts of the Bible. And what it, what's going on there is it wants us to think about that whole setting that was going on back there because that helps us understand what's going on here. So let's remember for a moment in Numbers 21, God sent those seraphim, and maybe they were much smaller. We we don't know too much detail. We hear that there that they were biting people instead of eating people, so we shouldn't think gigantic ones. And he did that because the people were complaining again, like they did again and again. They were speaking out against God, and what they were what they were accusing God of was was that God was not going to finish what he had started. Numbers twenty-one five says the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So the people were basically accusing God, as they did multiple times, of not finishing what He started. They were saying that that God wasn't going to carry through with His plan, His mission, His job to bring the people into the promised land. He had brought them into the wilderness. He had started, but then he's just going to dump them and and let them die. And why is this important? Well, it's important because the people of Isaiah's day were saying basically the same thing. Back in chapter 5, which we looked at last week, verses 18 to 19, (coughs) sorry, verse 19 shows us that the people were saying about God Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come that we may know it. So basically, this is a sarcastic way of of them saying, well, where is God? What's he up to? Why doesn't he hurry up? Where's that judgment that he talked about? Basic idea is the same As the people in Moses' day. See, in Moses' day, they were worried about starving. In Isaiah's day, they were worried about the Assyrians. But both of them were basically questioning whether God was going to finish what he had started. Both of them were sort of accusing God of having having brought them to a certain spot in history and then just dumped them, and walked away. And that's why the seraphim are important, because the seraphim help us think about that connection, but also because of what the seraphim say. So not only do they remind us by just being there that, oh yeah, God takes this very, very seriously, but think now about what the seraphim themselves are saying. They have two messages on their lips, and the first one is this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Isaiah 6, verse 3. Now, once again, we've got to pause and chew on this word holy. And I hope you're going to see how all of these things connect together. I don't know if you remember my first Sunday here, back in October of 2017. And I preached on Philippians 1, 1. And we talked about this idea of, of holiness. And we saw that that this word holiness has been misunderstood by, by many and for a lot of years. See, the, the root of the word holiness, when, when people try to say, well, what's the word holy mean? The root of the word holiness looks like or is similar to or is the, the, the word for cut, to cut. And so people have, have sort of filled in the blank and there's this one important study that happened a few hundred years ago that everyone kind of follows that, that the word holy means to be set apart from or, or separate from. That that's the basic meaning. It's like you cut something off and so there it is. And it's separate from everything else. And connected to that. Or maybe not connected to that. There, there's the, the, the general sense of many people. That the word holy speaks about being morally pure. If we were to say I, there's a holy man. Well he's someone who doesn't sin. He's, he's, he's perfect. Now that second idea is certainly true. God is absolutely perfect. But, but in recent years, and we talked about this all, you know, four and a half years ago, so, some really great scholars have been taking a closer look at this word, and they've, they've understood a couple things. One is just because a word has another word in it doesn't mean they're connected. Okay, so think about this. The word pulpit has the word pulp in it. But the word pulp and the word pulpit actually have nothing to do with each other. And, and, and people make mistakes with words in the Bible a lot when they say, well, this word has this in it, therefore it means that. Not always. And when we actually look at how the word holy was used in the Bible, in the context where it's used, and here's what's important, how it was used by the different peoples around the people of Israel. See, this was a word that was used by different different cultures and different peoples around Israel and and then in the New Testament around the church. The basic idea of the word holy, actually looking at how it's used, is it has the meaning of devoted. As in, devoted to God and his purposes. Okay, So think about something like the holy bread in the temple. It was devoted to God. It had been set aside, so there is a bit of a sense of set aside, but not so much set aside from, but set aside to. It had been devoted to God and his purposes. And so anyone couldn't just pick it up and eat it because it had been consecrated, another word for that. Holy ground. Holy ground was ground that had been devoted to the purpose of meeting with God. And it doesn't mean that's totally other because Moses actually had to take off his shoes so his skin could touch it. And and, and there's a sense actually of, of, of intimacy and connection there. But it had been devoted to that purpose of of meeting with God. Israel was a holy nation because they had been devoted to God's purposes. They couldn't do whatever they wanted and be whoever they wanted. They couldn't be like the nations around them because they had been devoted to God, consecrated to God. It's interesting if you think... If, if holy does mean totally other, like, like, that's how I've heard many people explain this. God is totally other from us, and, and we can, can't get any, like, there's nothing we can do to be like him at all. Well, it's very interesting that multiple times in Leviticus and, and in the New Testament, we read, be holy as I am holy. So if God is totally other, if, I mean, if that's what the word holy means then does it make sense that we're told to be like that? Now, yes, in a sense, it's true that God is completely different from us. But that's not the basic meaning of holy. The basic meaning of holy is to be devoted to God. And so back in Numbers 21, right, with the snakes, with the seraphs, here's where this is important. If you've got lost, let's try to get back on track here. The people were questioning whether God was holy. They didn't use the word, but that's what they were questioning. Whether God was devoted to his plan to take his people out of Egypt and to bring them to the promised land. They were questioning whether God was 100% committed to this job of saving his people. When they said, he's brought us out to the wilderness to die. And the people of Isaiah's day were questioning the same thing. When they're saying, where is God? Where's that judgment he talked about? What are they saying? Is God really holy? Is God really devoted to us and to his promises? Is God devoted to doing what he said he would do? To finishing what he had started? And the answer was yes. I mean... Isaiah chapter 5 gave us that answer in in, in verse 16. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. God is a holy God. He is devoted to doing what he's going to do and he's going to prove it with justice and righteousness. Or think later on in Isaiah. If If the idea of God being devoted to God... Seem strange to you. Think about these words Isaiah 48 9 to 11. God speaking about saving his people. And what's his reason ultimately for saving his people? Because he's devoted to himself. Listen to this. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another that is holiness what we just read there that God said that is holiness God is completely 100% devoted to his own glory and because of that he is completely devoted to keeping his promises to his covenant people he will do whatever is necessary to overcome their sin and to keep his promises and to triumph by his grace God is holy. That's what this means. He's devoted to himself and to his purposes and therefore to his people. But God is not just holy. The seraphim proclaim that God is holy, holy, holy. And this is so important. See, in, in the Hebrew language, if you want to say that something is totally, completely true, you say it twice. So in a couple places something is pure gold, the way you say that in Hebrew is gold gold. That means it's completely pure gold. Or in Genesis fourteen ten, the land is full of pits, and the way you say it's full of pits in Hebrew is that it's pits pits. You say something twice. And so we might expect the seraphim to say that God is holy, holy. But they go one step further. God is holy, holy, holy. From the wilderness of Moses' day to the chaos, seemingly chaos, of Isaiah's day, God is absolutely, completely dedicated to his own glory and his own purposes and therefore to keeping his covenant with his people. And nothing, nothing is going to get in the way of God keeping his promises because he's holy, holy, holy. And that's the first message on the lips of the seraphim. That's these seraphim bringing us back to the desert, reminding us of all of that. They're telling us God is devoted, devoted, devoted to his purposes and to his people. There's a second message on the lips of the seraphim. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of angel armies, what do they say about him next? They say, the whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, there's kind of the sense of of the Hebrew here. The whole earth is filled with something and that which fills the whole earth is his glory. The earth is full of glory, isn't it? Think of the glory of creation, the glory of a sunrise, the glory of buds, buds, Bursting out of a tree, the glory of a beautiful crop growing, the glory of a mountain range, or a newborn baby's cry, or a group of elk galloping across the prairie, the glory of an athlete setting a new world record, the glory of a symphony playing a moving piece of music in perfect timing with each other. The the earth is full of glory, it's there to be seen everywhere. And all of this glory is someone's glory. It's God's glory. It's all his because he made all of this. And and even the, the glory that comes from human accomplishments, he made us in his image. So anything glorious that we do simply reflects back to him. So these people of Isaiah's day are saying, where's God? What's he up to? And the seraphim's answer basically is, look around you. This whole earth is just filled with his glory. All of that is just the response of the seraphim, and we won't spend as much time on the next two. There's a lot there for us to see. This is how the seraphim, these terrifying, majestic, Creatures respond to this vision of, of god 's majesty with floor shaking worship. Now the camera, if you will, moves next to show us the surroundings, the environment in verse four We already know we 've seen that the the floors are shaking with the voice of the seraphim the, the, the foundations of the thresholds where where the doors are massive pieces of stone. And then next we see that the temple was filled with smoke. Smoke is a symbol throughout the Bible of God's presence. Smoke or a cloud smoke surrounded Mount Sinai. When God met with his people there in revelation 15, smoke fills the heavenly temple, a cloud filled Solomon's temple after it was, was dedicated. And, and so this smoke means Isaiah can't see much, But he knows what's in there, the manifest presence of God himself. This building, this physical space is is shaking and filled with smoke, showing us something of the majesty of this God. Finally, verse 5 shows us Isaiah's reaction to what he sees and experiences here. We've seen the seraphim, we've seen the, the environment, the building, the space, and now three, Isaiah's response Here's how Isaiah himself responds and and reacts to this vision of of a majestic God. Verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We've seen already that that the word woe in different forms is, is a statement that a prophet makes when he's proclaiming doom on someone. And Isaiah proclaims this prophetic doom on who? On himself. Woe is me, he says. I'm lost. That word lost comes from a word, the basic meaning is destroyed. That's why in the NIV, he says, woe is me, I'm ruined. Or in the King James Version, I am undone. Isaiah sees God. And just think about this. Rather than joining in the seraphim and praising God's holiness, Isaiah prepares for judgment and pronounces doom on himself. Why? Because in the presence of God, he sees himself truly. He knows that he's not like those seraphim who have holy lips. They're devoted to proclaiming God's praises. Isaiah's not like that. He's a man of unclean lips and he lives among people with the same. He's got a dirty mouth and so does everybody around him. And I don't think this means that Isaiah cursed like a sailor. I think it means that in the presence of God, having seen the real king, Isaiah understands just how sinful so much of his acceptable everyday language has been. You've had that experience, I'm sure, haven't you? Where you've sent a text or an email to the wrong person and you've totally embarrassed yourself. Or you, you've said something about someone and then you've turned around and, and, and you've seen them right there. There's so many things that, that we say on a regular basis that we don't think they're a big deal until we realize that someone else has actually been listening and, and then we feel, well, what are some of the phrases we use? Oh, I just wish I could have crawled into a hole and died or fell into the ground or something like that. It's, it almost feels like we wish we could die in those moments. Think of how much greater it was for Isaiah to understand that this majestic, Holy God had heard everything that he'd said, and Isaiah saw in a moment just how unclean his mouth was. Jesus said this matthew twelve thirty six to thirty seven I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And in this vision, Isaiah experiences the presence of God. and He knows his mouth hasn't been clean, devoted to God. He's got a dirty mouth and he feels like his doom has come. Woe is me, I'm ruined. This is what happens when people encounter God. Just like Peter in the boat after the miracle of the fish and he gets a glimpse of who Jesus really is, and he falls at his knees and says, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. See, when we see God truly, we see ourselves truly for the first time, and we know that we don't belong anywhere near someone that pure and that powerful and that majestic and that holy. And Isaiah knows that his dirty mouth means certain doom in the presence of this God. And we make a pivot here in the passage. We've seen the description of God's glory. We've seen the reaction to God's glory. And now we see the response of grace. What we see now with Isaiah in this spot of just completely coming apart, he is given grace. what does this grace look like? What does this grace sound like? It doesn't sound like this. Don't worry, Isaiah. Don't be so hard on yourself. You're not that bad. Other people are worse than you. You're a pretty good guy. That's why you're seeing this. No, nobody corrects Isaiah for his words about himself. And that's because Isaiah has seen himself very accurately. Like we considered here on Good Friday, grace never downplays our sin. Grace pays for our sin, but grace knows just how bad it is. And that's what happens here in verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So he comes with the burning coal that came from the altar. The altar where animal blood was shed to pay for the sins of the people. The altar where animal sacrifices made for a way for there to be peace between God and his people. Where atonement was made. And verse 7. He touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, It's hard to know in this vision how much Isaiah experienced, but in in real life, having your lips touched with a live coal would be one of the most excruciating experiences ever. I mean, the lips, the mouth is one of the most sensitive parts of our body. But the important aspect here is not that so much that Isaiah's mouth is purified by the fire as much as that having that coal come from the altar shows that Isaiah's sin has been atoned for. Something has happened to cover up his sin, to to make atone, to pay for the guilt of his sin. And that guilt now is taken away. So don't miss this. This majestic God does not respond to Isaiah by downplaying his sin, but by atoning for his sin. And now, being clean, being forgiven, having his guilt atoned for, Isaiah is ready to... He's ready to respond to the call. And that's what next week's passage is all about, is Jordan's going to unpack that for us in the second half of this chapter next week. But what can, what can we say at this point? What can, we, what can we say about everything we've seen in these seven verses at this point? Well, one of the things we understand is that from this point on, Isaiah was never the same. This vision of the majesty, the authority, the holiness of God left a mark on Isaiah that was never erased. And, and one of the ways we see that is in one of Isaiah's, if not his... The most favorite title that he uses for God, which is the Holy One or the Holy One of Israel. 29 times in the book of Isaiah, he uses this title compared to only seven times in all of the other prophets put together. So, all the other prophetic books, God's called the Holy One or the Holy One of Israel seven times. In Isaiah, 29 times. And this shows us how much of a mark that this made on, God, on, on Isaiah and how he never forgot that God is the Holy One. And I wonder if you and I need to be reminded of, those, of this same truth when we see in this passage, that we see in this passage. See, like Isaiah, you and I live in a day when we've been let down by many of our leaders. We don't have much trust for those in authority over us, we might wonder what the future holds. Who's really in charge? Like Isaiah's day, our world is rocked by major upheavals, geopolitics, superpowers, mowing over countries and threatening our safety, natural disasters bringing death and destruction, and causing people to ask, where is God? What's he up to? And like Isaiah and the people of his day, don't we need to be reminded that above what seems like chaos, above it all reigns a king, high and exalted and lifted up, on a throne full of authority, big, majestic, with angel armies at his disposal, and this is a king who is not to be trifled with. This is a king who makes dragons cover their faces and their feet in his presence, cowering, at the sight of his majesty. This is a king whose glory fills the whole earth and who is not just holy, who is not just holier, but who is the holiest being in the universe. He is absolutely devoted to himself and to his glory and to his purposes. And therefore, he is devoted to keeping his promises to the covenant people upon whom he has set his love. And that was the same for them in the desert. That was the same for them in Isaiah's day. And that's the same for us today God is holy and don't we need to be reminded of that this is good news for us that God is holy because it means that nothing in all of creation can separate us from God's love it means that nothing is going to stop God from finishing what he started it means that God will do what he has set out to do And that's why this is such a great passage for us to consider on a morning when we're remembering the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because the resurrection of Jesus is such a perfect statement of God's holiness, God's determination that his grace will triumph because nothing, not even death, could stop him from saving his people and from reigning over his people as a good king. He would send his son to atone for our sin and to take away our guilt. That altar and that coal were just just arrows pointing to the man on the cross and he would bring Jesus back from the dead to give us eternal life and he's going to finish it and nothing's going to stop it because he's holy, holy, holy and because he's holy, holy, holy we are saved Saved, saved. So this passage points us to the cross and the resurrection and the holy God whose grace will triumph over all. It's just like we're going to sing here in a moment. I hope this, this understanding of holiness helps some of these songs that we sing just come alive. Just think of these words here we're going to sing in a moment. Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only a holy God. Only my holy God. And so while there's so much more to see here, and especially in the way that the passage keeps on going into Isaiah's call, this is where we're going to end here today. By simply coming, and, and, and I invite you to come and worship this holy God. To join the seraphim in proclaiming who he is. And not just with a song that's going to be over in a few minutes, but with a life that, like Isaiah, has been touched by a deep awareness of of, of who we are apart from God and who we now are in him and who understands that the holiness of God changes everything and means everything. It means we can walk by faith. We can obey. We can take risks in his service because God is never going to leave us dangling. He's never going to dump us halfway He's going to finish what he started. He's devoted to his glory and the good of his people because he's holy, holy, holy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you help our souls to get a glimpse and a glimmer of your holiness, your absolute devotion to your glory, your purposes, your plans your covenant and your people that you've chosen and set your love on whom you will save no matter what. Would you help us, oh God, to not be swayed by the seeming chaos around us and the circumstances that threaten our faith? This is nothing new. Your people have always been tempted in these ways. But, O God, with this vision from Isaiah 6, lift the eyes of our hearts up to you, a king who rules over all, and a king who is holy, holy, holy. Be worshipped and honored by our life, our lives, now and always, I pray, O God. Amen.